Well, today, we're coming to a story about a man who, unlike Samson, is no match for a lion. At this point of the story of Daniel, Daniel is in his 80s. Although Daniel may not be a physical specimen and would be an easy kill for a lion, he's a different kind of specimen we learn. You see, Daniel is at the apex of his career. He is at the apex of the kingdom. He carries himself with incredible strength and wisdom and dignity, and he had a certain kind of spiritual depth and strength that when he looked you in the eyes, you could sense it. Today, we look into the face of Daniel. Now, there's a little danger with this story, and the danger is this. We've all heard it. This is not only the most famous story in the book of Daniel, it's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Well, that comes with certain kinds of benefits and costs. Let's do the good news first. The good news is, as you're all walking into this sermon, or many of you are walking the sermon with at least some idea of the story of Daniel and the lion's den, all right? So you have some kind of structure or framework. The bad news is, as we become immune, or if you want a GRE word, inured, I love that word, inured to the story, in other words, we just, it just kind of rolls off us. We've heard it before. So, so to make sure that doesn't happen, I thought we'd just start by stepping back for a second and look at where this story fits within the structure of the book of Daniel. Uh, as we know, uh, as has been noted, chapters 2 to 7 are in Aramaic. They're the only chapters in the Bible that are in Aramaic. And they exhibit, as you can see here, a chiastic structure. They're a chiasmus. A chiasmus means that unlike in Western thought, where in Western thought, we work through things in a linear way. A, B, C, D, E. But with an Easter thought, what you would do in order to prove a point is you would spin something around like this, okay? So you go A, B, C, C, B, A. And that's called a chiasmus. And so what that means is that we actually have a repetition of themes. And as you can see here, chapter 3, which was the last sermon I preached, which I'm sure all of you remember everything about that sermon, <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, it pairs with chapter 6, today's uh, Daniel and the Lion Den. And in fact, you can see that both of these stories follow a very similar pattern. The king issues an order that amounts to idolatry. The protagonists are discovered disobeying the order. The protagonists refuse to comply and are prepared for execution. The protagonists are delivered, either from a lion's den or a fiery furnace, rewarded, and their enemies are punished in a very bad way today, right? And then the king recognizes and praises the true God. Which then raises a question. Why the repeat? What's the difference? You see, if there's so much similarity, then the difference is really accented. And it really tells us what we should be focusing in on in terms of this text. And in fact, we see that there is a difference between these two texts. In chapter 3, we have a group, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refusing to commit something. But today, we have an individual who's refusing to omit something. So chapter 6 invites us to zero in on this individual, to look into the face of this Daniel, to understand who this man was, to understand how people responded to him and what the impact was of his life. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the remarkable Daniel, the quality of Daniel's life, the strengths and where he got these strengths. We're going to look at the response that Daniel elicited, 
right? We see two very polarizing responses, and then we're going to look at the results of Daniel's life, the results of this man of faith and integrity, and see what emerges from that. The remarkable Daniel, the response to Daniel, the results of Daniel. You think that's for you? I just want to make sure I don't forget what's going on in the sermon, right? It's, it's nice to have all R's. It's nice for me. Okay, that's where we're going today. The remarkable Daniel. You know, the story opens up in verse 1 and 2, and it gives us some context. We know that we had this incredible upheaval at the end of chapter 5, where um, Babylon was sacked by the Medes and the Persians, and Darius I takes control. He is the new emperor, and he's a smart guy. It says in the text that Darius did not want to suffer loss. And so he decides that he's going to get a grip of this giant, expansive kingdom. And what does he do? He sets up 120 satraps, which just is a word that means like a provincial governor. So he has 120 different provincial governors throughout his kingdom. And then there's a pyramid structure. He has three kind of overarching administrators that govern those satraps, those provincial governors. And then the text tells us that within this actually within this pyramid structure, that there is something that stands out, and that something is a remarkable man, and that's Daniel. And it tells us about Daniel, that Daniel is a man of incredible professional strength. Look at verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. That's what the Hebrew is, an excellent spirit. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So let's just stand back here for a second. Daniel is in his 80s now. This is not the young Daniel that was shipped out as an exile. This is Daniel in his 80s, and he's crushing it. His career is reaching the pinnacle. They've created a space for him in the empire to be the top, the apex, the top administrator. He's inspiring like that. And why? because he has a spirit of excellence. What does this mean? Daniel stood head and shoulders over all the other administrators. There were 122 other people that were giving this kind of governance, and Daniel stood head and shoulders. What does that mean? Daniel was the person that had the capacity for strategic, strategic uh, planning. Daniel was the kind of person that if you came with the problem, he just knew what to do. Daniel was one of those those unique individuals where they just had an instinct. They just had a gift with administration. They knew what they were doing. Daniel was the kind of guy that if he was in our society, we'd put him in charge of the MBA program at Harvard. If he was in our society, he'd be the COO of a major company. That's the kind of gifting this guy had. I just want to pause here for a second and notice something. You know, not only was Daniel this person with these incredible professional gifts, but we also know from the text, because we're now in chapter 6, we've seen Daniel also has incredible ministry gifts. Daniel is a prophet. Daniel can hear the voice of God, he can interpret dreams, and he can speak what God has to say to kings. Daniel could have been an Isaiah or a Jeremiah, but where is Daniel? Daniel is in the center of a secular organization, and he is leading See, Daniel knew that God had placed him there and that he was there in order to point people to God. And I have to confess, oftentimes within the church, we say, hey, if you want to be on the A-team for God, if you want to be really used by God, 
you got one of two options. You can be a pastor or a missionary, right? I know. Look, I'm a pastor. I'm on the A-team. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Hey, Daniel, who has, he could have been a prophet. He is leading the secular organization, and he is being used greatly by God. Daniel's calling was to be in this place, in this secular organization. Now, as it happens within, uh, you know, organizations, particularly political organizations, there's a lot of competition. And, And something happens here. When all these other people realize that Daniel is going to be promoted, that's the trigger. When they realize he's going to be promoted, it sets them off. Why does it set them off? Well, number one, if he's getting promoted, we're getting demoted, you know, in effect, right? Not just the other administrators, but the 120 satraps. They get together, and uh, they, they do not like this. So they want to look for dirt on Daniel. And it'll be pretty simple. We'll just show a few things like, hey, you know, actually, this guy is not so great. You know, this is called politics, okay? <laughs> it happens every day. Just read the newspaper, right? So they're looking for dirt on Daniel. And, uh, and then it tells us in verse 4 something about what that was like for them. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found within him. See, Daniel was a part of a certain kind of culture, right? Where it was pretty much expected that somebody in that position, it wouldn't be hard to find how he was padding the expense, how he was maybe using funds in a way to have a woman on the side. Wouldn't be hard to find how he was having certain personal luxuries that were a part of having that job, how he was taking bribes. Bribes were common. And they look at Daniel's life, and they're shocked because he doesn't do any of that stuff. He's an example, an example of brilliant, sterling integrity. See, Daniel is a person who, unlike and unlike them, because they assume they're going to find it because it's in their lives, Daniel's public life and his private life completely matched. He was the same person that when you would sit down for lunch and have a very confidential conversation, and you'd see him in public at meetings, he was the same person. They matched. Daniel, in many ways, is the epitome of what a public servant should be. So Daniel has professional strengths. He has personal virtue. And I think together, these tell us what Daniel is supposed to epitomize. And we have to remember that All the exiles that were in Babylon were given a charge by Jeremiah the prophet. And we've talked about this before, but it becomes important right now. Jeremiah 29, 4-7, this is what Jeremiah told uh, the, the exiles that were going. He gave them this charge. Exiles are going to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So what's Jeremiah's advice? Number one, don't withdraw. Build houses. 
Settle down, plant gardens, be a part of the city, be a part of the social and the economic and the political life of the city. Don't create a little enclave, a little Christian subculture. Uh, if you want more of that, listen to Josh's first sermon in this series, right? So don't withdraw from the culture, okay? But number two, don't accommodate. Be a person of prayer. Be a person that has concern. Seek to see the city transform. Don't just simply merge with the city. And what we find with Daniel is Daniel is the case study. He's the role model. He's the example of this. He's this incredibly brilliant example. In other words, he's in the world, but not of it. He is at the apex and in the center of Babylon, and he is being what Jesus said, the salt of the earth. Now, what is salt? Well, in our culture, salt is flavoring. All right? Some of you put way too much salt on things. But in the ancient world, salt, salt was too precious to be flavoring. It was, they didn't have refrigerators. It was simply a way in which you could keep things from going bad. You would salt it. It'd keep it from falling apart, from, from becoming corrupt and corroded and rotting. And that's what Daniel is. Daniel is in the midst of this corporate culture that's corrupt, in the midst of this Babylonian empire, and he is salt. He is put, and salt, it doesn't do any good if it's sitting in the shaker. You got to put that salt out there and let it just dissolve and get into the warp and the wolf and mixed up into the messiness of that food, and if it doesn't do it, it'll be no good, and Daniel is in the middle of it. And Daniel shows his strength in that he doesn't capitulate to the culture. He doesn't withdraw from the culture. He doesn't say, L.A. is going to pot. I'm moving to Arizona. Oh, no. Oh, sorry. Did I say that? <laughs> no, he doesn't. I'm moving to, a, you know, someplace where people are like me. That's not what Daniel does. Daniel's in the middle of it. He's in the middle of it. And this takes strength. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, says, Daniel has learned to enact his distinctive Jewish identity in the presence of hostile forces. Which then raises a really important question. How did he do it? I mean, how did he do it? Some of you are wondering, like, yeah, I'm, I'm in the midst of hostile forces. How did he do it? How did this guy live in this culture where there's briberies and kickbacks and where people just assume there's dirt and people are, like, how did he live in this situation? You know, the text tells us, it gives us a clue in verse 10. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had always done. Daniel has built into his life habits that counteract the temptations to withdraw as well as to accommodate. Daniel has holy habits in his life. What was he praying for? I mean, three times a day. That's the next question I had. That's a lot of prayer. Did he run out? Well, I, here's some ideas. Jeremiah already told the exiles what to pray for in Jeremiah 29.7. Pray for the prosperity of Babylon. So Daniel, I'm guessing, was praying over those provinces, praying over Babylon, praying for this pagan city, that it would flourish, that it would grow, expand, that it would be a place of health and life, and ultimately, spiritually, that something would happen there, that people would see the God of Israel. He was a prayer warrior for Babylon, I'm guessing. But it also tells us something else about what he was praying about. What does he do? He opens up his windows towards Jerusalem. Why pray towards a city that's in ruins when you are in the middle of what's happening? 
You're in the biggest, most impressive city of the day. He's praying towards Jerusalem. Why is he doing this? The reason he's doing this is because it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. Jerusalem is in ruins. He's in Babylon. But why is he praying towards Jerusalem? Because he knows that God has promised that he is going to work through a son of David, that God has a plan that one day God is going to bring the true king of Israel. And that king is going to bring the flourishing that no earthly king can bring. Daniel is praying towards Jerusalem to counteract the forces and the stories that were being told within Babylonian culture. Everybody assumed Babylon was the pinnacle. Everybody assumed it's all about Babylon, and he has a different narrative. So he's praying three times a day. And we can read this and we go, yeah, well, that's Daniel. Super spiritual guy, three times a day. But I don't think that's the point. I don't think the point is, is that Daniel is super spiritual. I don't think the point is, is that Daniel is a creature of habit. I think the point is, is that we are all creatures of habit. I think that the point is, is that we are all creatures of habit, and the only way to be salt and light and strong in the midst of a very difficult situation is if we recalibrate our hearts on a regular basis. There's no other way to do it. And those of you who have been in situations where you felt the temptation and you know you need God's strength, three times a day is not enough. Right? It's not enough. So Daniel is recalibrating his heart. And why is that? Because Daniel knows, because Scripture says that the heart is incredibly important. As it says in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart is the compass. The heart is the homing beacon. We are not just brains on a stick. We have certain imaginations and desires. And as we walk through life, we hear stories that grab our attention. We see things that grab our imagination. We feel things that grab our desires. And Daniel knows that his heart is very, very important if he is going to not just simply give in to the culture or simply abandon the culture. He needs to recalibrate his heart. James uh, K.A. Smith, who's endorsing a wonderful book coming out this year, um, wrote this. That was a little humor. All right, wrote this. Our heart, for the most part, operates below the level of consciousness at a visceral level. The visceral region of our loves and longings is tapped by our habits. Indeed, virtues are just good moral habits. See, Daniel was a man of virtue. There are things that come second nature, the things we do without thinking about it, what we do automatically. Our loves can be so trained and shaped that we become the kind of person for whom Christ-like life bubbles up from who we are without thinking about it. Wow, that's a lot, right? That's a dense, that's a dense quote. And I wish I could nerd out right now and go into Paul Ricoeur and how he talks about the way in which we all have patterns and habits, and, and um, it would be horrible for you guys. But the point is, is that we already have daily habits and patterns. And those daily habits and patterns are what inform our heart about what is real, about what, is, what the world is. If, if in your daily habits and patterns, 
you go through life and none of those include connecting with the God of the universe, your heart will be functionally an atheist even if you might sign off on all the creeds because it'll know something that your brain doesn't know. It'll really know what you believe, <laughs> right? Daniel recalibrated his heart three times a day. His, his life was marked by rhythms and routines, holy habits, and, um, and we all have to submit to rhythms and routines. It's impossible actually to live life without rhythms and routines, but the question is what kind of life will we live as a result of the rhythms and routines that we have? So, this is Daniel. Professional strength, personal virtue, an incredible agility as an administrator, this incredible spiritual depth and strength of resolve in the face of pressures. And as a result of who he is, there's polarizing responses. On one hand, you've got the 122 satraps and his colleagues, these administrators, who've decided to throw him under the bus. These are interesting characters. You know, uh, I'm going to get a little psychological here because I think the text actually shows there's some depth to what happened to them. Off the bat, they're not out to get Daniel. They just kind of like, they just kind of want to drop him down a little bit. They just want to get a little dirt on him, you know, show, then go, hey, king, you know, padding the expense, got a woman, I don't know. Chief guy, eh, I'm not sure about this promotion, you know. And then Daniel wouldn't get the promotion, like, ah, better luck next year, Daniel. Hope it works out for you. That was the plan initially. But what happens? They go for dirt, and there's no dirt. And not only that, there's something creepy about this guy. Like, this guy, he's a little bit not like them too much. <laughs> it disturbs them. Uh, and on top of that, he's got a capacity that they can't help but recognize they don't have. Have you ever seen the, the movie Amadeus, right? Amadeus, is, it's, it's a story uh, about um, this... Uh, this composer, Antonio Salieri, it's really his own internal struggle with trying to be an Amadeus and not having it. He works so hard. He's doing everything he can. And then there's Mozart, who just, you know, yeah, he just does this on the side, but he's really living some other narrative. <laughs> and he dreams of being able to perform like Mozart. And it just drives him crazy. Well, in some ways, it's the opposite of what's happening. See, Mozart's living some wild life, and Salieri's like seeking God and trying to do this and struggling. It's a Daniel story reverse because here we have these satraps and these prefects who they are just simply like living out of this selfish narrative, but they want the gifts that Daniel has. And there's some jealousy, but there's also something that, that makes it dark. I mean, they want to kill him. It goes a dark direction. And not only that, the way they do it is, it's diabolical. They don't want to get their hands dirty. They want to, you know, like, you know, they have, they frame him. They set up this, these laws, right? They get this king to sign off on a law. And then what happens is that, and then it's like, oh, then they all go as a group, like, yep, praying, got it. Then they come back to the king. Oh, king, didn't you happen to sign a certain thing? Well, guess what? And then listen to the way they frame it. The way they phrase it is just, it's horrible. They, they, they come back and they say, that man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, not the top dog who you just gave the top position, who we all know is what, that captive from Judah. There's a little bit of racism in there, right? That captive from Judah is paying no attention to you or your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. 
They don't want to get their hands dirty. It's a, it's a white-collar crime, right? But they want to enact certain kind of things where they know the outcome. They know what's going to happen. It's diabolical. Doesn't care about you. That guy who doesn't care about you. Hey, let's face it. If there was anybody that was on the king's side, it was Daniel, right? A little bit of pro the projection there. I won't get too psychological. Projection there is crazy. All right. So Daniel um, stands in stark contrast to these enemies. And when I think about this contrast, I think it's the contrast between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. If Daniel is living in Genesis 12. What's Genesis 12? Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I, I am going to call you and I want your descendants to be a blessing. I want, the, I want them to be a blessing to the nations. I want you to be a blessing to this earth. And so Daniel is living a life of blessing. He's praying for the flourishing of a city. When he comes to work, he's thinking, how can I bring good over this entire area? And then on this hand, we have his enemies, and they're in Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel. And 11.4 tells us that the people set out to make a name for themselves. And what does it mean to make a name for yourself? It means that you want to become important. You want to be seen. And so they, and so, and, and they built a city. They're building a city, but the whole point is to get their needs met, get their fame, and get their accomplishment. And it's what happens within corporate culture where everyone's fighting in order to get what they want. And no one's really thinking big picture about how do I bring good. And so here you have Daniel who wants to bring blessing, and then you have these, this group of people who are just fighting in order to get their name heard. And you know what? The difference is Daniel didn't, didn't need a name. You know, when he shows up, he's given a name, but he already had one. He was the name that he was given as a child of God, as a son of Abraham, as someone who's been called to bring blessings to the nation. And as a result, the way he looked and what he was doing was radically different. He didn't need to live, I mean, think about what it was like. I think about what it was like. I mean, he had a high-pressure job, and there, he could have had his ego on the line every day, right? What's amazing is that he has this kind of like clarity, like, it's not about me. God, bring flourishing to Babylon. Make your name great in Babylon. May your blessing come to this people. And he stood out as such a light because he was operating from an entirely different script. It's profound. And I think this is part of what bugged his colleagues. They couldn't put their finger on it, but there was something, he was doing something different than them. He was entering into his work sphere with a very different way of seeing what mattered. That's hard. I, I mean, I can preach that, but let me tell you, you don't need to be in a secular organization to try to make a name for yourself right? As a preacher, I can say, you can want to make a name for yourself right here. Every single one of us is tempted by that, to enter into whatever field or cultural, uh, you know, thing we're building. I mean, Daniel and these, they're all, everyone's building Babylon, but there's two entirely different scripts in terms of what they're doing. And churches can use their context in order to try to make a name for themselves, right? Or they can bless the city. We're just going to offer a carnival. There's no strings attached. We're going to bless you, we're just going to give. We want to bless this neighborhood. Wow, what's different about that, right? That's our calling, to be a blessing and to pray for this, this context too. I like it that Daniel was praying for where God had put him. 
You know, I mean, it's easy to like, God, let's pray for the world out there. All those, you know, universal people that are not very particular, definitely not my neighbor. You know, <laughs> Daniel's praying and he's living it out right here. And that's why, on the other hand, you have the king. What's the king's response? Like, this guy's different. And anybody that's administrating, you can tell when someone shows up and is like, okay, this person's, you know, they, where's my paycheck? You know, they're definitely trying to fight their way and get a name for themselves. And the person's like, I'm here to see how we can bless this organization, how we can bless this institution, how we can bless this space. You're like, hire that guy. Hire that woman. That person has a different vision, right? So the king is in, in, invested. All right. So Daniel, who Daniel was, elicited this response. Some people were bugged, irritated. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They were envious, but they didn't know what to do. But other people saw this person's incredible blessing. So we've seen the, the remarkable Daniel. We've seen the response to Daniel, Daniel. And finally, the results of Daniel's strong spiritual faith. Now, the simple answer is simply, well, you got out of the... Lion's Den. Yep, that's the result. All right, let's go home. That was a good sermon. Thanks, Pastor. Got out of Lion's Den. That's good. All right, that's too simple. See, some of you thought you're getting off the hook right now. All right, no, too simple. There's actually a lot going on here in terms of the results of his faith. The first thing is, is Daniel has this incredible poise. I don't know if you noticed it, but it starts off with like, there's a new king, there's a new kingdom, empires rise and fall. And here's Daniel. He's still there, faithful, right? You also see it in the narrative in which you have the king contrasted with Daniel. You know, the king stays up all night. He's worried to death. You know, he's trying to do whatever he can to get Daniel out. He can't. And then he comes, and the first thing in the morning, he's like, Daniel, 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 has your God saved you? And Daniel's like, oh, king, no worries. And he just walks through life with poise. He's not rattled. He knows who he is. He knows the name he has. He knows what God has called him to. And as a result, one of the things we see is that he is this, 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 this person with incredible poise. But another thing we see is that we have a pagan king, and we didn't read this part, but if you look at the end, you can see there's this pagan king who is praising God. See, Daniel's life elicits praise to God. Daniel's life elicits people seeing who God is. Daniel is a person who has incredible poise and strength and resilience. And then what does the king praise? A God with incredible strength and poise and resilience. Look what King Darius says in verse 27. He is the living God. He endures through the ages. His realm will suffer no injury. His rule will persist to the end. This is a God that can be trusted. This is a God that is stable. This is a God that if you put your faith in this God, because I've seen it in the life of Daniel, my life will have stability. What a witness Daniel was, right? To the God he served. But there's something else cool that's happening here that's a result of Daniel's faith. And it involves this rescue, this miracle. You know, why does God rescue in this way? Why these lions doing nothing? I mean, it's, it's kind of cool. 
It's not that impressive. I mean, I don't know. It's cool. I mean, believe me, if I was in the lion's den, I'd be like, oh, that was really cool. But it's like, really, God? Like, it would have been cooler if, like, Daniel's like, my God's the true God. And watch this. God, turn off the sun. God, turn the sun on. God, make that volcano erupt. Dari's be like, I'm good, I'm good. Whatever, you're God, you're God, you're good. No, it's, it's not just about a sheer force of power. The miracles in the Bible are never just about showing brute strength, that God is, God is God. He can do whatever he wants. It's not about that. Even Daniel shows us, number one, it's about vindication. Can't you see, king, I am innocent. So Daniel is vindicated. But number two, the miracles in the Bible, they always give us a picture into what God wants, into who God is and what God desires for this world. You know, when Jesus came, Jesus went about healing. He went about touching those who were sick. He went about raising the dead. He wanted life and health. He went about doing miracles that brought uh, flourishing. And in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we have this empire, this dark empire, which is going to make everybody bow down and put everybody under their feet. And everybody will worship the image. And everybody is enslaved in this dark force. And these three are thrown into the furnace, which symbolizes that power of the empire. And it breaks. It doesn't work. Because God will, God will stop every dark empire that, sub, that subjugates people and the marginalized and pushes them down because God's kingdom will be placed where that will not be happening. And in the story of Daniel, we have lions who their mouths are just shut off, okay? We know that because look what happens when the next people go in the lion's den. They don't even reach the bottom, they're eaten, okay? So something happened with the lions. It's a miracle, right? Well, what's the point? There's an awesome passage in Isaiah 11 that says this. A day is coming... Days coming, says the Lord, when the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling will be together, and a little child will lead them. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be the full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth is going to be a place where there's not violence, the violence of tooth and claw and blood and attack. It will be a realm of peace. And so Daniel's life and the miracle that came out of that shows us a picture of the world that God is bringing, and our lives can do that as well. But finally, finally, one final result. Lions are social animals. They work as a group. You know, hyenas can actually kill a lion if they can get the lion alone. But when lions are together as a pride, they're unstoppable, totally unstoppable. So what shut the mouths of these lions? You know, both this text and Daniel chapter 3 tells us that God sends someone. In Daniel chapter 3, we get a clearer picture. It is one who's like the Son of God. In fact, many people believe that this is Jesus and I believe, I believe that in that lion den was a greater lion that joined with that, joined with Daniel. Daniel is joined by another lion who is infinitely stronger than these lions, a lion C.S. Lewis called Aslan. 
and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, there's this great picture where Mr. Tumnus is in trouble. <laughs> Mr. Tumnus is in dire straits and like, what are we going to do? How do we rescue Mr. Tumnus? And then Mr. Beaver says, Aslan can help. Who's Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan? asked Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. It's he, not you, who will save Mr. Tumnus. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. Make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's face it taking our lives and bringing them before Jesus Christ is terrifying. It feels unsafe. It feels horrifying in many ways. What is he going to take? What is he going to keep? What is he going to ask of me? But when we've done that, we now have the king of the universe who has promised that he will never leave or forsake us no matter where we are or what we're going through. We have the strength of the Lion of Judah who will walk with us into whatever situation we're in, whether we are leading some organization, whatever pressures we have, whatever dark situation, he's going to walk with us into Thanksgiving at the dinner table when we're with our relatives. That lion den, some of you are going to face. <laughs> and give us the poise to not take the bait. Give us the poise to love and not simply mold into that little microculture, right? And not to stand off aloof, but to engage in a way that has integrity. See, when we know the Lion of Judah, we have the ultimate, ultimate companion who will be by our side that can walk with us through the darkest of days and through the most difficult times. And how do we know this? Because this lion is also a lamb who was slain, who knows what it's like to be scratched and marred, and much more than Daniel got, to be completely taken down and to have the stone rolled over and to be sealed in that pit of death and to break through that. We have the lion and the lamb who wants to walk with every single one of us, but we need to face him and say, here it is. Here's my life. By your grace, meet me. Help me to pray for my city that it might flourish. Help me, Lord, to love in a way that isn't about me. Give me your grace, Lord. And if we do, our lives will result in the praise to God, and our lives will be lives where no matter what we go through, we will not be alone. We will know him. He will know us. And we will emerge from life 
And our lives will show a life we never could have expected because we will have the grace of God in our lives. Praise be to God. Lord, we come before you and we acknowledge we have such small visions of who you are. And we live lives as practical atheists. And Lord, so often we see time with you as a burden. And Lord, we're missing it. We need your grace. We need to be like Daniel. Lord, we thank you for the example he is. But Lord, ultimately, he's an example of the strength and the power that you have and what you can do through lives that are surrendered to you. So we pray that we would surrender our lives to you, that other people might see who you are, that our lives might elicit the kind of strength and brilliance and beauty and poise that we see not only in Daniel, but ultimately in you, Lord, because you are the source of our strength and our life. Amen.